Safe banking gets closer to reality, a first economic empowerment license for the city of Boston, and how do regulations designed to eliminate cannabis arrests lead to a larger illegal market? Shoshana Silverberg is the director of strategy for Pistol and Stigma, and she's a mover and shaker in the world of weed. She joins me next on In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. Don't look now, but it's a whole new world of weed out there. Pot is flower, it's Bruce Banner and Blue Dream. You've got bongs and dabs, resin and shatter, vaping and edibles, new terms, new strains, and new ways to use cannabis sativa, the plant. Some just made with CBD, and hemp has minimal THC. There's sativa and indica strains, and 100 chemicals, all legal in 10 states for adult use. There's a lot to get to know. Get used to it, folks, because it's legal in the Bay State and it's not going away. Neither is In the Weeds with Jimmy Young next. Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called Cannabis Sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. Shoshana Silverberg is a cannabis advocate, originally from Connecticut. Now she lives in Nevada. And I want to welcome her to In the Weeds with Jimmy Young, a podcast found on most major networks, including iTunes, Spotify, and the C-Suite Radio Network. Shoshana, great to talk with you again. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. So I'm going to jump right into this a little bit and tell me a little bit about Pistol and Stigma. What is that and what do you do in Nevada? Sure. So first off, pistol and stigma, uh, they are the reproductive organs uh, of a plant, right? They're female reproductive organs. You can sort of see the double entendre there. We're a woman-owned and operated boutique consulting firm in the cannabis space. Um, If you're new to cannabis and you don't know uh, the flower that that is the commodity that everyone is after these days is actually a female plant. uh, And we sort of pay homage uh, to her and it uh, through our name um, and sort of reference the civil liberties component of fighting for the freedom of a plant, uh, which we think uh, is aligned with fighting for freedom for people. Uh, so we are in the business and investing space, but uh, we are very much uh, social justice advocates at heart. So one of the um, things we talked about earlier when we were going over the show is the preponderance of women in the cannabis industry. And we talked about Ashley Pacillo from Point Seven uh, Consulting out of Colorado. I've been reading her book. They were all these different females, uh, women entrepreneurs who have built businesses or have interesting research studies to tell. And why do you see more women getting into this business in the beginning? You know, it it is really interesting. Um, I don't think we have full research in yet because not everyone can even come out, so to speak, uh, to the people in their family or in their communities about the work that they're doing. Um, And I think a lot of people, especially uh, when you see folks with more specialized skills coming out of science or, um, you know, more the marketing 
uh, departments of larger companies, you know, people are dipping their toes, attorneys dipping their toes into cannabis water um, before they're making the full transition. Uh, that goes, you know, regardless of sex. But I think it's a little tough to get a read exactly on who comprises the workforce. So with that said, um, I imagine that a lot of women gravitate towards this space um, because it's new. Right. And it's an open field. Right. And uh, we're tired of, of trying to tread over uh, ground that, you know, we've been treading over for a long time. A lot of us are, are sort of ready to lead um, in that open space, I think, really creates the opportunity for that. You don't think it has anything to do with the fact that the plant is female? I love that you said it because I'm going to I'm going to support that observation. I just can't right. substantiate it. <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. That's fun. All right. No big deal. And uh, I just thought I'd throw that in anyway. I, I, I do. And I commend the women in this business for a number of reasons. First of all, and, and my executive producer, Joyce Gerber, will, will tell you this. I'm, I'm very, very comfortable with the fact that I really do believe that women are the superior sex and they're finally getting the respect that they deserve in a man-run world over the last hundreds of years. I mean, it really wasn't too long ago that women even didn't get to vote, you know, and they had to fight for that. And now you're fighting for your rights in the workplace. And now you've got an opportunity in an industry where you can make your own mark, having equal access to a new industry, because for the most part, uh, it's a cash business in the beginning anyway, isn't it? It is. It is. That's a whole other topic. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, I guess one note um, before moving on to the money part is, yeah. you know, I think that the culture of this industry, it's very business minded. It's very bottom line oriented. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's a real uh, re- appreciation for uh, the bravery it takes to step out into this space. Um, you do have to sort of come out of a closet. You do have to sort of be on the edge of something. Um, and I think that that respect that we have for each other for doing that, regardless of our different walks of life prior to coming into the cannabis space, I think it translates um, even in terms of, you know, how people identify in their gender. And, and, and no, I, I, don't, I don't think the culture of this industry really cares how you identify gender-wise how you identify in terms of sexual orientation. Um, it's really, when we say it's an open space, I think it's an open space in a truly progressive sense um, that's bigger even than cannabis. So I, I, I want to throw that out there because I don't know of any other industry that's, uh, that, takes, that takes acceptance of all human beings, whomever and wherever they are, as, as being a baseline for them participating um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's hardcore, man. Like <laughs> it's still federally legal. Um, we don't enjoy the banking services or a consistency in banking services that other sectors enjoy. And you know, there are a million risk factors, um, from unfair taxation, uh, to again, the, the issue you mentioned of even maintaining banking services, you know, all the way to, um, you know, not knowing if the state or your locality is going to change regulations um, as you're building out your business um, with no recourse for you in terms of the investment you've already made and having to pivot on a dime to suit uh, the specifications of your local or state government. Um, those are all just prices that we pay for being in this industry. And it's, it's steep and, and it, it takes grit, definitely. 
Well, we have some movement down in Washington, D.C. It's one of the few issues actually in Washington, D.C. that both sides of the aisle recognize reform needs to happen. How that reform happens will be the old, uh, well, let's add this amendment to that and this amendment to that. But there is some movement on the Safe Banking Act, uh, moving uh, a bill that Ed Perlmutter has put together. Uh, I believe he's a Democrat from Colorado or Oregon? God, I mix them all up, all those legal states. Anyway, um, he started it. It's now uh, has something like 233 um, sponsors in the House of Representatives. They've now sent it over to the Senate. And Mike Crapo, who's the head of that banking committee of the Senate, has kind of intimated that, yep, he knows something has to happen and doesn't make sense for the banks not to be able to do business in the cannabis space now. And he's willing to do something about it. He's not sure what he's going to do. But uh, we're all seeing movement in the cannabis issues and in the reform of cannabis laws at the federal level. Uh, Can the Safe Banking Act be at an amendment that would actually decriminalize cannabis federally just to take off that whole mix up between the two laws? Uh oh. What happened? Hello? I don't know. Shoshana, oh. are you there? Hey guys, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Oh. I did myself. <laughs> I said at the risk, silently, I said at the risk of uh, giving a long winded answer. I think we have to distinguish between what decriminalization means and what legalization means. And so it's kind of like if you're going to legalize something, or in this case, cannabis, um, similar to what we see now with hemp through the 2018 Agricultural Improvement Act or the Farm Bill, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to see a descheduling of it. Once it's descheduled, it's no longer listed the same way under the Controlled Substances Act. And that that takes away, it's sort of like, uh, it takes the stinger out. Um, and, and everything else can, can kind of follow suit. If that doesn't happen, then everything else that we're doing in a way is sort of chipping away at the edges, you know, and I would classify efforts, um, short of legalization, such as the safe banking act as decriminalization efforts, as you mentioned. So Mm -hmm. it's not that either, it's not that it's bad or good. It just sort of, you know, there's still work cut out for us because at the end of the day, we don't have full uh, agency if we don't have total legalization. So the decrim part, I mean, you can create exceptions. It's sort of like right now. Um, are you familiar with the um, amendment that keeps Congress from spending money to enforce um, prohibition. It's it's comes up every year or every 18 months, I think, um, through an appropriations bill. And it's an amendment that we fear won't get passed. Basically, every 18 months, the industry sort of, those of us who crack this stuff, have little butterflies in our stomach watching to make sure that it, it gets renewed. And what that does is prevent, again, Congress from spending money on enforcement of prohibition um, to uh, arrest folks who are acting in compliance with their state's laws. Um, it's sort of a 10th amendment get around. Um, and it's really the only thing that's <laughs> allowed us. It's not the only thing, but it's, it's probably that the most stringent thing that's actually kept us from facing um, potential prosecution um, from the federal government this entire time. Um, and so it's not to say that little tweaks um, 
like amendments that you're mentioning aren't incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, they can enable a, an industry to keep developing. Um, so I think it's incredibly useful um, with the SAFE Act would accomplish, but it, it's not a magic wand. It doesn't, it doesn't remove um, cannabis from a controlled substance list. Um, and that's the only thing that will ultimately uh, really rid us of prohibition and, and all of the ways that it um, can create sort of complications for those of us in the space. So if they deschedule it away from schedule one and do you want it off the scheduling chart completely of that controlled substance act? I mean, I think, you know, that's the, that's what full legalization will mean. Right. Um, and so to the extent that we're advocating right for full legalization, yes. Um, is it possible that incremental change is actually better for us in a way? Uh, that's possible too. I definitely think that's a matter of opinion. Um, but what you're seeing also with something like the state act is again, very similar in a way to what we saw with the farm bill of 2018. It's sort of incremental progress, um, aimed at sort of compensating for the fact that we have not reached the point of full legalization. You know, it's so funny. I was reading recently. I don't know how funny it is, but it, it's a fact of our world as we move towards a new normal. Um, if you go into uh, near a state border of a legal state, Massachusetts obviously being a legal adult use state, uh, Rhode Island still a medical marijuana only state, um, you get close to the border and you see a billboard that says, hey, welcome to Massachusetts. Weed is legal here. Now, you and I both know when the public mob sees something on a sign that says, hey, weed's legal, knows that the voters voted it in legal, isn't there a feeling about the use of the product and the fact that the product is around and you can smell it? I mean, isn't there, there's a letter of the law and then there's reality, isn't there, Shoshana? There is. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Jimmy, is there another question there? or? Oh, no, that's, I just make statements and I wait to hear your reaction to them. That's really <laughs> I got, it. I got to do that. Oh, man. Well, it actually reminds me, uh, I went to college in Amherst, Massachusetts, yeah. and I remember being the age that I was, I think I was just happy to hear this, and I don't think I ever verified for myself in the local code, but um, I remember at least being told that marijuana had been decriminalized Right. Um, whether it was Northampton or it was Amherst, to be honest, I can't even remember anymore. And I always remember it brought me such comfort seeing as that I always had, you know, a little bit on me wherever I was. And I remember thinking, how do I even know if that's true? I mean, I, I guess I knew I could sort of consult, you know, my dad, he was an attorney. He could, he could tell me how to figure that out. But I think the point is sort of like the lack of um, continuity maybe between like what the law is and, and what people's reality is. And a lot of it is, is really about what people are aware of and not necessarily what the rules are. And so to me, it's like, you see a billboard, like it's just the opposite. You know, it used to be that, that it actually probably was decriminalized where I was, but I never would have known it if someone hadn't told me. Now you see a billboard when you're driving through Massachusetts, it's the state advertising to you that you should go ahead and purchase marijuana. I, I think the disjuncture is really uh, the sort of 
profit motive. And right. <laughs> like, well, I think they want you to benefiting from think, educating whom? <laughs> right. They want the education. They want you to learn more about the cannabis sativa plant. That in in you know now that it's here, uh, and and they're they're trying to do that a lot in Massachusetts. Uh, it slowly but surely is starting to come around. Uh, recently. Uh, two other bank, two banks. Actually, there are three financial institutions that uh, do business in the medicinal marijuana community: uh, Century Bank and the Gardner Federal Credit Union and Bay State Bank are the three financial institutions. I'm pretty sure that it was Century and the Gardner Federal Credit have a said recently that they are now going to do business in the adult use recreational world and perhaps even start uh, talking about loaning money to prospective uh, businesses. And that, to me, that's another big step forward uh, done at the state level where it is legal. Um, will other states follow? I don't know the answer to that. Well, you have to remember, I mean, um, you know, banks aren't absolutely prohibited from doing business with cannabis operations, right? That's, it's not, there's no, there's no explicit prohibition that's focused on banks. Um, if anything, you know, there have been such things as FinCEN guidelines issued, uh, you know, and, and, you know, banks are, are hundreds of banks around the country have cannabis businesses as clients. The issue is that, you know, there's not a whole lot of consistency or protection for these businesses because as soon as the paperwork uh, becomes too onerous, and it is a highly regulated industry, as soon as it becomes either too onerous in terms of compliance paperwork for the bank, or if there is some sort of red flag as to, you know, source of funds for a cannabis business or, you know, something that could legitimately, you know, uh, fuel the need for a suspicious activity report to be issued. I mean, those those are things that are legitimate business concerns for the banks. Um, but again, they're not, they're, it's not, it's not like it's impossible for banks to do business with us. <laughs> right. It's, it, 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 that's sort of a fallacy. I think that's, that's come out of all of the well-warranted attention that's been focused now on the banking issue. Yeah. And, and it'll only get, uh, well, if anything, it's going to improve, uh, over time, whether, uh, this safe banking act gets passed or, or, or not, uh, perhaps something in a, in a different form. Um, one of the, um, other news items that's happened up here in the Northeast um, over the last few weeks is the emergence of a economic empowerment program uh, offering an opportunity for those most impacted on the war on drugs to have an opportunity to get into this business. I, I see this happening not just in Massachusetts, but across the country. Are we seeing that in Nevada? No, you're not seeing that in Nevada, no. Uh, we, uh, we're based here. Our work... Uh, kind of takes place everywhere. Um, no, you're not seeing that in Nevada. You're definitely seeing that in a number of cities in California. Um, you're seeing that uh, most recently even in Illinois with the passage of adult use and the establishment of a fund for social equity applicants. Mm -hmm. I believe it's like 50% of the licensing fees that will be waived. Um, and, then, and then it remains to be seen exactly how these funds get administered, you know, once folks actually get awarded licenses and try to get off the ground. Um, it, it's, it's, it's definitely a space for experimentation. I don't think anyone's figured out how to nail this yet. It's sort of just like seeing a lot of different pilot programs in different parts of the country. It, it's really exciting, but we don't necessarily, I don't think have 
lessons learned yet or best practices established. No, and, I, and in fact, I've talked to Steve Hoffman, the, uh, the head of the Cannabis Control Commission, about this, and you know he wants to see more activity on the private side rather than the public side. Uh, I can certainly understand that as well, but I, you know, I don't know how it's going to work. You know, they just gave out their first license. It won't. The store won't even be open in Boston until uh, the fall, and you know, so there's lots of things that still have to happen there. What What do you think? The everybody talks about how the war on drugs has failed. Um, this started with the Controlled Substances Act in 1971 with uh, Tricky Dick Nixon, who you know, as a 14 year old, I definitely hated. <laughs> it was one of the first things I learned was uh, do not trust this man, um, which is really a shame, but it, it's the truth. Uh, how much of this is uh, what I call white man guilt driven, the expungement of records? A lot of these uh, states around the country are trying to, um, well, try to make up for things that got, they screwed up in the past. I don't know how else to describe it other than that way. And do, do you see more states looking to expunge uh, basic small possession amount type convictions? Yeah, I think I think it's really important, though, for starters to distinguish between expungement and social equity. Um, for one thing, you know, <laughs> the, the concept of social equity programs is to say that folks who have been um, hurt statistically by a war on a substance should have the opportunity to profit um, from the creation of a legal market, specifically because what were many people's black market efforts in the past um, were take their their ability to make money was taken away first by law enforcement and now by the replacement of a legal market. It's it that's one thing. The expungement piece is related, but I mean it's even more, I think, a function of logic than morality. I mean it's it's to say, okay, if you have a bunch of people who are in prison for not even necessarily having trafficked or profited from cannabis, but just from having possessed it even a small amount, the amount of suffering that they've, that they've endured now having been incarcerated, the collateral damage to their families and their communities from those folks being incarcerated. And then for us to legalize that same substance, create a marketplace for it and to say, oh, you still have to sit in prison. I mean, that's just, there's just something on a, on a level of logic that is clearly flawed. And I think the expungement movement is really correctly a, a baseline effort to remedy that it shouldn't be perceived as anything associated with guilt or you know compensating people um for harm it's really that's just what needs to happen yeah i i feel strongly about that no i know i hear you and i and you have a background in civil liberties too i understand that and and you should and these people have been um they've certainly paid their fines and dues uh, by spending some time behind bars for a, a very small amount of possession. And it, you can't turn the clock back, but you sure can try and, and make things better moving forward and getting them out of prison and then expunging their records for it too. And uh, hopefully we're going to see that happen. I don't know when, but I, I do hear it in just about every single state that is moving towards uh, cannabis reform. They want some kind of expungement and opportunities for those who've been hurt the most um, by the war, the failed war on, on drugs. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, CBD, my friend Cannabidiol. 
I'm saying it more <laughs> often now, and I'm saying it right for the first time, I believe. <laughs> People are impressed that I even know that that's the word. CBD is so much easier. But I'm going to throw in another uh, initial group here, the FDA. <laughs> and the FDA and CBD are finally, uh, uh, the FDA is finally acting on that farm bill, finally saying, okay, this is what we can do, what you can't do with this, sub, with this product. Uh, cannabidiol, obviously, is the, uh, one of the more active components of the cannabis sativa plant. It, it has an anti-inflammatory component. It has, everybody keeps saying it doesn't have a psychoactive component. But it has a psychological component um, because it helps you um, deal with your pain. And that's going to make you feel better. And, you know, while the FDA is making Cure Relief put all these labels and saying, well, we can't make any medical claims, but it's going to make you feel better. <laughs> uh, do you see the FDA? Are we starting to see the FDA starting to focus better on what they want? CBD, what role they want CBD to have in our food, in our, in our um, topicals and all the other stuff that we use? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to our previous conversation about uh, what full legalization means. Um, and just as, you know, with banking, you know, we're never going to get a perfect solution until uh, THC, you know, containing cannabis is taken out of the controlled substance list. Uh, it's the same it's actually sort of already occurred with CBD now in a way vis-a-vis -vis hemp. The farm bill, right, took yep. hemp out of being a controlled substance, which allowed for federal agencies to begin regulating. Um, you see the Postal Service issuing statements, you know, around interstate commerce and the USDA issuing comments about the same topic. Um, you know, they're not able to change policies broadly for the American people, but they are able to change internal policies that affect practices that then sort of chip away um, at prohibition, right? So it's it's almost like informal decriminalization um, by all these different agencies that sort of play a role in the larger cannabis conundrum. Uh, and I think the same thing is, you know, applying here with FDA um, and, and hemp or CBD, you know, that comes from hemp. Uh, the idea is that we've been fighting this whole time for, uh, you know, mainstreaming cannabis and for legalization of hemp. Well, now we've got it. And what happens uh, when that happens is that it gets regulated by things like the FDA and where you didn't have questions being asked before and you, you know the stakes weren't as high for companies who were producing and they were they were producing in their state they were keeping it within state lines they were you know being very focused in their efforts you know or or there were more folks were just retail establishments were just importing under the industrial farming act and and you know not sort of having to deal with with any of the regulations that would come from manufacturing it themselves or, um, you know, transporting it themselves across state lines. Now you're seeing all of those possibilities open up, but along with those possibilities are going to come more strictures. And, you know, the, the primary form of stricture is what you're talking about. And Cureleaf is a perfect example of that, you know, needing to discontinue a handful of their products, um, you know, if they're not able to amend their packaging and labeling such that they conform with the same FDA regulations that apply to vitamins and supplements. Yeah. And, and, that's, and now we're going to ask you. It's par for the course. Right. And yeah. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, do you read those warning labels? 
<laughs> Thank you very much. I, I, uh, I'm going to rest my case on that. Um, first, but <laughs> well, I mean, here uh, to be fair, I mean, the 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 premise it's it's absurd for sure, but the premise is that if it's if you're in compliance with FDA standards, you're not posing a public health risk. Right. That's the line. It doesn't mean that you're actually conferring medical benefit on anybody, right? right? Like right. that's how it's set up. That and and here's the thing, I, that's totally an objectionable premise. Like, I actually believe we should be talking about that like crazy. But the thing is, it is way freaking bigger than just cannabis or hemp. It That's about our system, you know, around food and, and anything dietary and cosmetics. Uh, it's about a huge world of products um, that maybe, you know, people care so much about cannabis, it's actually going to enable us to take a more critical look at how we regulate all sorts of things or like, don't regulate all sorts of things. Yep. Like Andrew Steen Dion that was in Mark McGuire's locker back in the day when everybody was uh, wowing the fact that he could hit 70 home runs in, in a uh, season in baseball. And I kept looking at that stuff and saying to myself, something's not right here. Anyway, I always, I always sneak sports in somehow, some way. I want to ask you a question about vertical companies and holding companies, public versus private. Um, obviously, there are all sorts of laws when it comes to a public company because they have to divulge their P&Ls, their, their profit and loss statements to their, to their public, to the public, right? I mean, that's what a public mm-hmm. co- company is about, right? Mm-hmm. A company like Curalief, which is a um, seed-to-sale vertical company, uh, and it is publicly traded, um, recently restructured their own internal ownership and got in trouble for doing that. And, and I say in trouble, it means it caught the ire of the Cannabis Commission here in Massachusetts. Um, but I don't know if they did anything wrong other than what normal uh, public companies or private companies do when it comes to, I don't want to say playing with the books, but with um, using different figures, if you will, and different distribution of profits and, and, and revenues. Can you explain what a vertical company is too? Is that something you can talk to me about? Oh, in this context, I'm not sure if I'm understanding your use of it exactly. When, you mean it like when we say vertically integrated? Yes. Okay, so vertical vertical integration is is just to say you're sort of an intact supply chain of your own. So if I want to sell weed at a storefront, if I'm not growing it myself and I have to get it from you, then I'm not vertically integrated. If I've got my own stuff and I'm bringing it all the way through to manufacturing, all the way through to transporting, all the way through to retail, I am vertically integrated. And the kind of key thing to keep in mind about that is, right, it's it's a more scalable model of business. So if your intentions are to reach a higher certain realm of profits, then not being vertically integrated, you got to have some other type of competitive advantage that's going to set you apart or really increase your valuation. Otherwise it's clearly in your best interest to be vertically integrated. And is, and is the dealings of these vertical companies paving the way for them to be acquired by big pharma? Is that not their exit strategy, you think, in the whole picture here? Um, I mean, I think that's sort of an overgeneralization of a lot of things. I mean, I think, you know... I'm a talk show host. I'm supposed to do yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if vertical... You know, 
where it probably statistically it's more common for a company that builds a higher valuation that would thus stand a higher chance of getting acquired by a bigger company, you know, being vertically integrated is going to position you for that probably more so than not. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I mean, the other, you know, you could just be an R and D play, a research and development play, you know, and not even sell weed. Um, and you could discover something or you could, you know, obtain a patent that's incredibly, incredibly valuable. And that's really all your play ever has to be. It's, so I don't think it's as simple as that. Um, I do think though, that whether you're talking about an intellectual property play or you're talking about, um, something, you know, a, a vertically integrated company that's just sort of acquiring, um, you know, licenses essentially left and right. Um, that's, that's building evaluation. It's like anything else. I mean, even if you weren't publicly traded, if, if what you're doing is trying to sell yourself to either shareholders or to a potential, you know, acquisition partner, like you need to be able to account for your valuation. You need, you know, in, if for no other reason than so that you can prove that you weren't engaging in fraud, right? If you're ever called out on it, I mean, these are really basic. Again, these are really basic. I think things that aren't they're not exclusively issues of the cannabis industry. It's just that cannabis industry is forcing so many of these things under a spotlight. And I think it's similar to issues you were raising a minute ago around government oversight and regulations. It's like, we may have a problem with how our financial sector is run or the accountability or lack of accountability that's required for companies when they're engaging in M&A. But, you know, that's, that's probably actually a larger issue. And, and cannabis is sort of just, again, putting a spotlight on it. And uh, is the one thing that's perhaps bringing both sides of the political aisle together, too. It's a fascinating time to be on the outside just talking about this industry and documenting some of the things that are happening on a daily basis as we move to what we call the the new normal. Uh, Shoshana Silverberg from Pistol and Stigma, you have been a terrific guest for the second time, I might add, and <laughs> and I appreciate that. And I look forward to uh, keeping in touch with you one way or another. Uh, again, uh, Pistol and Stigma is P-I-S-T-I-L-A-N-D. That's and stigma, S-T-I-G-M-A dot com. And that's where uh, people can find out about what you're doing. And can I ask you, are you in Las Vegas? I actually was. I lived in Vegas for several years. Uh, I am now in northern Nevada. Uh, We're based in Reno, Nevada, although we have clients everywhere. Gotcha. I gotcha. That's fair enough. Uh, just because I have a friend down in Las Vegas who's an illustrator, has his own art gallery now, and I always love to give Neil Portnoy uh, a little plug here and there because he's also the illustrator for the Las Vegas Examiner, which I think is still in business. And yeah, uh, yeah, lovely. And he's and he's down there. So if you ever get back to Las Vegas and you want to check out an amazing illustrator who's been called the Norman Rockwell of sports, uh, he has a gallery down there in Las Vegas, and uh, I look forward to actually seeing him. Because I think we're going to go to Las Vegas for MJ BizCon in December. Everybody's all excited about that, I can tell. Yeah. Well, either way, whether it's 
through your friend or at MGA Biz. I'm sure we'll be seeing you there as well. All right. Fair enough. Thank you so much, Shoshana Silverberg from Pistol and Stigma. You've been listening to In the Weeds with Jimmy Young, a podcast found on most major podcast networks, including iTunes, Spotify, and the C-Suite Radio Network. Of course, a record we always have is also available on ProCannabisMedia.com. So, for Dan French, who directed and technically produced this thing, for our executive producer, Joyce Gerber, and for Steve Helmuth, just for being Steve, who also helped us out in the studio today, too. I'm your host, Jimmy Young. We'll hear you, see you next time on In the Weeds. Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called Cannabis Sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. In the Weeds with Jimmy Young is a video podcast produced by the Pro Cannabis Media Network for the entertainment and education of our audience. All opinions on this show should not be considered medical advice or reflect the opinions of the management of CLNS Media, C-Suite Network, Pro Cannabis Media Group, or its marketing partners.